Morning. Happy Mother's Day. And hi, Mum. So my mother is actually here, which is very exciting for me. Um, oh, a ripple of applause for my mum. That's a little unfair. What about all the other mothers? They can still applaud all the mothers. Yes, wonderful. I am in the strange position then of having my, having my parents here and having my, celebrating the, giving and thanking God for my son uh, on the same day as I'm then going to speak in our series on the Ten Commandments on commandment number five, which is honour your father and your mother that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. We're going to do that and look at that in a moment. And if you have a Bible and want to turn to Matthew chapter 15, that would be great, Matthew 15. But I love the way that the, uh, the themes of Mother's Day and celebrating children come together on a day like this. And I, I think it's important we see them because if we don't, then those of us whose mothers are no longer with us or who don't know our mothers or those of us who's, who don't have children or those of us who may have lost children or those who've never been able to have children will all feel like this whole thing is celebrating something that we don't really connect with. And I think what happens on a day like this is what we do is we see, we do these very human things. We celebrate relatives, but as we do them, we are also celebrating the way in which God has welcomed us and come to us and the way in which we can come to him. So as I'm standing up here on the stage wanting to sort of get my son and do that thing that you do, that they do in the beginning of The Lion King and just go, and then you all go, that sort of thing. I realize that behind that, there's actually that God has that feeling about his people, his children, and the Bible speaks of him celebrating over his children and rejoicing over us with loud singing. And so when we see that, you think, well, I don't have children. How do I relate to this? One of the things we can do is say, that's a picture of the love that God the Father has for me. And then at the same time, when we celebrate our mothers and we go and give them flowers, some of us, for that, ask, that's a sad moment too, because we say, I'd love to go and give my mother flowers, but she's no longer with me. Or I never even knew her. And at that point, again, we are able to, we should be, sort of stand back and say, you know, but this is a picture of the way that I come to the Lord God and as part of his family come and say, God, you have brought me into the world. You have given me life. And I may or may not know the, pers- the earthly person through whom that happened, but I'm thankful that you are the one who has supplied me with life, sustained me, strengthened me, and I want to give you flowers of thanks and honor and reverence, whether or not I have a relationship with my earthly mother now. And I love the way that those two things come together. And so that's, that's, I hope that will help set us up really to look at this text. I have just got to say this though. Um, there has been some confusion in my family about exactly what we have just done. We, we talk about this as thanking God for children, celebrating children. Um, unfortunately, the distinction between that and the totally different experience of infant baptism is slightly lost on my niece, uh, who is now up in the kids' work, but who said to her mother, so my sister-in-law yesterday, I'm just so looking forward to seeing Sam get hypnotized tomorrow. I was like, where on earth has that come from? And just in case you think that's what we've just done and there's some sort of weird ceremony here by which we make him behave, that's not what's been going on at all. Um, But we are, as I say, in this series on the Ten Commandments. And we're going to be in commandment number five today. What we've done is looked at the Ten Commandments and seen that the first four are really all about loving God. And the last six are all about loving your neighbor. The first four, love God, really, only have one God, don't make idols, don't dishonor the name of God and honor the Sabbath. And then the last six are all about love your neighbor, love people, that is don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. And the first of the six, actually, commandment number five, honor your father and your mother that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
And there are two places in the, New, in the New Testament where that commandment gets picked up on and expanded on. And so if you're, if you're new to the Bible, you're new to, the, new to church, new to Christianity, I hope this will help you make sense of how we're going to apply that to our lives. There are two places in the New Testament where the command to honor your father and mother gets picked up on. One of them is that Paul applies it to children in Ephesians 6 and says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, and then quotes the fifth commandment. And some of us hear that and go, yeah, that's great. This is a commandment for kids. We're really pleased about that. The kids are next door, and so we don't really have to do anything. We can just listen to them. I mean, they are hopefully next door being told, you need to listen to your mum and dad. And we can sit there and go, that's right. My children should listen to me, and I don't really have anything to do. So commandment number five, yay, it applies to the kids and not to me, and I can sit here and feel smug about the fact that I don't have to do it. The other place in the New Testament, unfortunately, is a little bit more on the nose for those of us who are adults. The other place in the New Testament this gets picked up on, it's actually in two of the Gospels, it's the same story, Matthew 15 and Mark chapter 7, it's picked up by Jesus and applied to adults. And if you think about it, the Ten Commandments are basically given to adults, aren't they? You know, it's the adults who are gathered together and told, do not commit adultery. That's not something that you tell children. By definition, they can't do it. Although when you were a kid, did you used to think that adultery was behaving like an adult? Did you ever think that? Anyone? I mean, me neither. I just thought, just in case, you know, um, just in case. It's just one of those words that sounds like that's what it means. But anyway, it's one of those things you don't have to tell children not to do. You don't really usually have to tell children not to murder or not to commit adultery. These things, these commands are given to adults. So honor your father and mother is given to grown-ups. It's given to us and not just to the people next door. And what Jesus does in the story we're going to read now is he refuses to allow us to domesticate it and to feel pleased with ourselves, he actually brings very challenging words to his day, which as I hope to show you, is probably even more challenging in our day. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 15 and see what he says. Matthew 15, then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. And that, just to explain, that doesn't mean that's unhygienic. That means that is ritually impure. They are not doing what we think you should do to express a right level of reverence for the commands. So your, command, your disciples are breaking the law and you need to pull them in line. What are you doing, is what they're saying. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother and Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. That's strong language, right? He's saying, you guys are accusing me and my disciples of not taking the law seriously, but you take the law so unseriously that you have decided that it's better for somebody to not honor their parents and use the money instead for the temple offering than to honor their parents. And in doing that, you've elevated a human tradition, looking after the temple, over honoring your parents. And that's a terrible thing to do, you hypocrites. And then he doesn't stop there. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but in their heart they're far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now most people in the UK think Jesus is fluffier than this. Yeah, most people, you do a survey outside the Arndale, you'll find that most people in this town, and what do they think of Jesus? They do not imagine him saying things like this. 
For many people, Jesus is the kind of person who wouldn't hurt a fly or ruffle any feathers or say boo to a goose. And yet the Bible presents him pretty fierily here. You hypocrites, whoever reviles his parents must surely die. Now he's not proposing we should make a law about that. He's saying you are not taking that command seriously in the way you speak of your parents. You're breaking the commandment of God, he says. You are making void God's word. You are worshiping him in vain. That's strong stuff. And the reason is because people are putting human traditions about their money over honoring their parents. And he's angry about it. He says, you mustn't do that. He recognizes the hypocrisy and he publicly confronts it. And I think if there's challenging words for first century Jews in this story, which there are, there are even more challenging words for 21st century British people. In many ways, actually, I think, I think you would, there is no way that you would read this story. If you know anything at all about Middle Eastern culture in the first century, or actually even today, you would probably never say, I don't think anyone would say, British people honor their parents more than first century Jews do. If anything, you'd find the exact opposite. You would say, man, if Jesus is challenging them about their failure to honor their parents and their capacity to make excuses for why they're not, my goodness, he would have even stronger things to say about 21st century Britain. I don't think there'd be many societies. If you were to draw a chart somehow of the level of honor expressed for parents and older people in all societies and put a dot for every culture, you would find our culture would be in the bottom left-hand corner of that chart, wouldn't you? you would, I, I suspect, I'm going to try and persuade you of that in a moment, but I think you would find, if you traveled the world a bit or if you've read much history, you think, man, people in the UK today have far less esteem for age and parents than almost any culture that's ever existed. I'll try and explain to you why I think that's true. So take travel, okay? So if you've traveled a bit, you'll find that almost every society outside of secular and northwestern Europe, Western Europe and North America, you'll find almost every other culture, which is where almost everybody lives on planet Earth, honor and esteem age and parents more than we do. And they would put a higher value on age generally. So if you travel to Japan, you think, wow, these people esteem people simply for being old, in a way that we don't. In fact, we might do the opposite. We might begin to not esteem people for being old. So you might have expressions or turns of phrase in our culture that might imply that people are more likely not to have a useful opinion because they're old. Well, in many, many cultures, you go to the East, you go to China, same thing, Southeast Asia, you'd say, there is an, an expectation that someone old will have something more meaningful to say than someone young. And in our culture, that's almost the other way around. You go and travel in almost any honor-shame culture, which is much of the world, much of, if you like, the middle bit of the world from top to bottom, you'll find a very strong emphasis on honor towards those older than you. And that would be just part of the fabric of society. That's not a Christian conviction or a religious thing at all. It's just the way that the world works for them. And in our culture, that's almost disappeared. Some would say completely. You travel in India, you think there is a deference and an honor for age in this society that we simply don't have. And it can almost make, some of us can feel uncomfortable. If you've been an older person, traveled in a, in a culture where those things are true, you can almost find, I don't quite know how to handle this. They are deferring to me because I'm old and I'm not used to that where I come from because in Britain, no one does that. If I'm waiting in a bus stop and there's a younger person more athletic than me, they'll just push past me and get on the bus. I'm, whereas that would never happen in a lot of cultures because you defer, you honor age. And often you do it on appearance. You may have seen um, 
Black Panther. I watched Black Panther last week. I mean, it's just, I hate superhero movies generally, but Black Panther was fantastic. And there are this sort of very, very strong culture. You praise the ancestors, honor the ancestors. This sort of represented by Forrest Whitaker here, but this kind of very strong sense of honor for those who are your ancestors, those who have been your parents or your grandparents. And that represents actually the way that almost all sub-Saharan Africa reflects on the concept of parenting or age. You defer to people who are older than you. In Britain, our attitude towards parents is probably more accurately reflected in this guy. Daddy pig, okay? What we do, and now notice, I mean, of course, these are my parents, my kids are allowed to read Peppa Pig and so on, but daddy pig and grandpa pig are the two, they're just idiots, aren't they? They're buffoons, they're presented that way. And they are, we are teaching, and I don't stop my kids watching it, but notice what we're doing. We are teaching our children to think fathers are stupid from the age of two. That's what we're doing. Now, I personally don't, I feel like I've got bigger fish to fry and I don't mind it and I, um, it's all right. But, and I'm not saying you mustn't watch Peppa Pig. Um, although I hope not many, too many of you spend too much time watching Peppa Pig. But the point is, notice, in many cultures, that simply wouldn't be a joke, would it? You wouldn't have a character like Daddy Pig existing in many, and certainly in this kind of culture. Think, what are you doing talking about the ancestors, your fathers, that way? So I think there's, we've got some things to wake up to a little bit as a culture going, if Jesus was confronting first century Jews about this issue, I bet he'd be confronting us and probably more so. In many languages, you know, there's a way of expressing reverence for age or older people. Yeah, so you go to, you travel in Turkey and you meet an older man who you respect, you will refer to him as Abi. It's just a way of, that means older brother, but it's a way of saying, hey, Abi, you're, I'm, I'm honoring you for being older than me. And even in France, you meet an older person, you call them vous. You wouldn't call them two if you didn't know them. There's a way of expressing respect. In English, we used to have, and even 50 years ago, people would refer to an older person, an older man as Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so. And in our culture, that's completely disintegrated. So there is no way linguistically of expressing, or almost no way, of expressing reverence or honor for age or parenting. It flattens the generations, and what's happening in our language has happened in our culture as well. I went on Amazon this week. There are 70,000 books on parenting. There are no books on honoring your parents, or at least not that I could find. That wasn't the theme. There are 4,000 books on aging parents, but by the ones I skimmed through, they seem to be mostly about how to get your parents into care and how to declutter their houses. And I'm just speaking personally here. My parents have a far less cluttered house than I do. I've got young people, I can mess everywhere. My parents doesn't need decluttering. But you see, it's a way of thinking, isn't it? That we're saying, of course, I want to know how to look after, how parents should look after children. But how should children relate to parents? Oh, we don't know. Not even Amazon knows. And there's one final little anecdote. Just to, I want to try and persuade you this is an issue for us as a culture and that the church is called to be countercultural here. One of the, just really start home with me. I'm afraid I can't remember which... I tried to look it up this week, but I couldn't find it. But there was a, a, in, a in the book by Ben Judah called This Is London. He, does, he goes, he's a journalist who goes undercover in London and gets in and amongst lots and lots of basically immigrant and often illegal communities in London, beating people that you don't read about on the news, really. And he's talking to this one guy who I think was from Syria, but it may have been some, another Middle Eastern country that's faced political conflict recently. But let's say Syria. And he's talking to this guy and who's come over to Britain to, because of the money. And he says, but I want to go home. I want to go back to my country. And then Judah says to him, why is that? Why do you want to do that? Because your country is so troubled. And he says to him, I want to go back to my country because I don't want my son, when he's a teenager, to turn around and tell me to F off. 
That would never, ever happen in my culture. It happens all the time in yours. And I read that and I thought, A, that's obviously true, that that is a cultural gap, and B, that speaks of sometimes the challenge upon us in reflecting, honoring fathers and mothers, and it puts it in quite a nice Middle Eastern culture. Right? Jesus' culture is much closer to that Syrian man, or if that's where he's from, than it is to ours. And it's good to learn from cultures like that and go, okay, there's some things that we do well as a society that I'm proud of, some things where I think that has almost disappeared, and we need to learn and lean into that. And we may ask, why is the UK like that then? Why, why do you, what's, what's the deal? What did we, what's behind the fact that we are like that, if you're persuaded that it is an issue? Well, I think there might be a whole range of reasons why. I think there's one big reason, I'll come to it at the end, but there are some little reasons too. British society is individualistic. We think of ourselves as individuals rather than as parts of a larger unit, which, by the way, is why it's great to come to a church where you say, my, I, I, my meaning in life comes from being part of a family and a community and not from being a standalone individual. That's why, we do, that's why we do things like we've just done. We think it's valuable to see ourselves that way, but society as a whole doesn't. So we think of ourselves, I'm an individual, I'll vote for me, or I'll make decisions for me, or I'll take a job for me, not for us. That's the way our culture works. And that means you don't value family in the same way, and certainly not older family. British society is also egalitarian and democratic. That is, if you're 18 and you don't know anything, you have as much of a vote as somebody who remembers rationing. And you could say, that doesn't sound right, because surely that person who remembers rationing has been through the 40s and the 50s. They've been through the 70s. They've been through the 90s. They've seen wars and rumors of wars. They know all about it. They should have like 11 votes for every one of you, but that's not the way our society works, and I'm not saying it should. But what it does is it makes young people think, my opinion is just as valuable as yours because I've got a right to vote just like you have, and that embeds something in the fabric of the culture which I suspect, in the end, come back, comes back to bite you in important ways. Our culture is also progressive. That is, we think that the future is always going to be better than the past, which in the end makes you think, well, young people must be largely right because they're the future, and old people must be largely wrong because they're the past. Don't get stuck in the past. Look to the future. And you think, well, there's probably a lot of good reasons why that works, but one of the things that will do is create a, an imbalanced sense of where the wisdom lies in your culture. We're also obsessed with technology. And if your family's anything like mine, your kids are better at handling new technology than your parents are. Yeah? And, and so my son, age nine, will figure out how something works quicker than I will, will figure, probably figure out how something works quicker than my mum will. That, that's just, and that's the nature of the way in which society works. But what that does when you have a very tech-obsessed society is that gives an awful lot of power to people who are very young relative to people who are old if societies run that way. We're obsessed with beauty. So anything that can make people look young, so they're more likely to look attractive, is honored. And we're obsessed with money. So anything that can make you productive, so you can make money and have jobs. And we, we value that as well. And what that means, of course, is both in both respects, we're tilting towards things which young people do in society, youngish, more than older people. I read this great book from, by Glenn Scrivener, who some of you know is a local preacher, and he just made this excellent comment. He said, on my social media feeds, the only time I hear of the elderly is when they act like young people. So occasionally, there's the story of the 70-year-old marathon runner, or the 80-year-old breakdancer, or the 90-year-olds who are into speed dating. And we say, aren't these people inspiring? What we fail to add, but undeniably mean is, when they act like 20-year-olds. 
We don't prize the elderly for the qualities traditionally associated with them, wisdom and experience. No, but when they muster up the vigor to ape our youthful trends, then we'll pay attention briefly. I thought there was a lot of wisdom in that comment. And I think underneath all of those factors probably is the big, big reason why our culture honors youth much more than age generally. And that is that our culture has no hope when it comes to death. Our culture has literally a hopeless view of the future. Because when I die, if I, if I'm not, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the resurrection, which a Christian does, but if you don't, then you say, I died, that's the end. So I want to make death as far away as possible, keep it out of sight, out of mind. I don't want to see it, I don't want to think about it, I want to find people who remind me of it and put them in a home, I want to get them off my TV screen, I want to spend all of my time surrounded by things that go, youth, youth, young, 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 because then death isn't here. So we trumpet the value of youth, we distract ourselves from dying, and we try and give old age the boot as far as possible. The Christian hope is totally different. And actually, for the Christian, the closer you get to the age where you think you're going to die, the closer you get to the crown of life, resurrection future. And in many ways, that turns the whole system of thinking about the generations on their head. And it should. To which Jesus, in Matthew 15, says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. That is, your future blessing depends on how you treat those who have blessed you in the past. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long. Right? There's a future perspective here, but it's based in the way you treat the past, the way you treat your, those who've served you before. And as Paul points out in Ephesians, that's the only commandment with a promise. Nine commandments that just say, do this, don't do that. This one says, do this in order that you may be blessed in abundance in the future. It's also interesting that the other... Six commandments at the end about people are all framed as don'ts, except for this one, which is framed as a do. Yeah? Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. Do honor your father and mother. So it's an, un, it's an interesting commandment. It's got things about it that are not common for the others. And honoring Jesus, following Jesus, means living differently to the world around us with respect to our parents. So we mustn't make void the word of God by following human traditions. In Jesus' day, that meant taking the money that you should have been given to support your aging parents and giving it to the offering for the temple. That's what, that was the problem in his day. In our day, that's not the problem, probably. I doubt there's, there might be, but there's very unlikely to be people here who that's the main application from today. The problem is probably that we have absorbed enough of the traditions of our culture that we don't even really think to defer to those who are older than we are. We may even find it sticks in our throat to go older and wiser. So what does it look like then to honor your father and your mother? I mean, I hope, if nothing else, that that's created a sense of unease that maybe we need to learn something here. Maybe we need to act differently from the way in which, broadly speaking, the world around us works. And I'm aware that I'm speaking to a number of people here from other cultures who will say, yeah, absolutely, our culture does this well. That's wonderful. I'm talking primarily here to sort of secular British culture-based people. What does it look like then in that sort of a world to honor your father and your mother? Well, his five which come from some, I just thought an excellent piece on this from the Canadian writer Tim Challies that really helped me. Five pointers on what it may look like, and the first one's very wise. It says, you're going to honor your father and your mother. Actually, the first thing that probably means doing is you need to forgive them. And I thought, ooh, that's, that is insightful because there's a lot of people who have heard the first 20 minutes of this message and found it really hard, even just thinking, you do not know my dad. You don't, I, I don't know my dad. You certainly don't. You don't know what he or she did. I don't, I, I don't know how I could physically apply what you've just said 
given who they are. And that often means that the first thing we may need to do is to forgive them. And obviously for some of us, that's a massive, massive deal. And some of us have spent years working, decades in some cases, working through how to forgive, how to, how to say, do you know what, this does not mean that I'm trivializing what they did for a second. It means that I'm treating their sin the same way God treats mine, which is with immense seriousness and, if you like, condemnation of the action and yet the decision to relinquish control and to decide to let go of the grievance out of love that can, in the end, even forgive those who have sinned grievously against us. And that may well be, for many of us, the main application from today. I need to forgive my parents. For some of us, that's huge, hugely costly. For others of us, you think, I had great parents. That's my story, certainly. My parents are wonderful parents. But it's funny because you still, even with the best parents, you have to forgive them for stuff because they say things, as I do to my kids, that in the moment, you didn't think were very significant. But actually, because you're their mum or dad, they really go in. And they stay there, and children can still be, years later, carrying something that the parent doesn't even remember they said or did. But they're still carrying it, and therefore we need to develop the habit of forgiving. When something like that comes to mind, of forgiving our parents. Forgiveness is vital, because no father or mother is perfect. So, in theory, we are all going to have sinned against our kids if we've got children. So we need to forgive them, and that, I think, is even particularly true, if I can say this, if the parent in question is either dead or estranged from us because at that point we've got no way of bringing them to a place of repentance and confrontation we still need to reach a place where we're able to say I, I let you go I, I condemn what you did and I don't condemn you I forgive you in the name of Jesus as God in Christ has forgiven me that's easy to say and we could talk a lot more about that but I think that's one of the things it often means doing forgive them the second one is to speak well of them Right? So notice Jesus quotes Exodus 21 as well as Exodus 20. Honor your father or mother. And then he quotes this pretty strongly worded commandment. Whoever reviles his father or mother shall surely die. I don't think Jesus is saying you should bring that law into, into play now. And I'm certainly not saying that. But what it is doing is saying speaking in an honoring, respectful way of your parents is not a negotiable thing for the Christian. You revile, that is to speak evil of, that, at some points in Israel's story, that, that got the death penalty. And Jesus is saying, you need to hear the force of that and stop trivializing what your parents need because you've got a religious excuse. And by the way, the way you speak of your parents also will be the way that your kids speak about you. Because, I, and I, that's what happened to me, right? I learned, I saw the way my mum and dad spoke about their parents and I have broadly imitated it. Not knowingly, I just have. That's how you talk. And so if you're saying, actually, that isn't something they're very strong at, but you do it within the context of honoring and esteeming them as a person. So forgive them, speak well of them. Thirdly, seek their wisdom. In Scripture, age comes with wisdom, folly comes with youth. Clearly, we all know people who could be old and make silly decisions. And we all know people who are young who can make great decisions. But the principle underneath it is that age is something that brings wisdom, and therefore it's good for us, not just to honor people, but actually just to learn to honor and ask for wisdom from those who are older, and particularly our parents and, if relevant, grandparents. Parents don't always know more about everything, right? My parents, there'll be some things I know more about than my mum and dad. There'll be some things that my kids very soon will know more about than me. That's okay. But parents often, well, they will always know more about some things, and they'll often know more about the big things, the things that actually really make a life, 
usually the person who's lived longer will have better access to those things. And what we can do in our tech-obsessed, youth-obsessed, money-obsessed culture is to act like the fact that I know more more than you about how to use social media means that I am more qualified to opine on what makes a worthwhile life, and that's not true. You seek wisdom. You may know the quote. I don't think Mark Twain ever said it, but it's attributed to Mark Twain. And, he said, and the quote goes, it's a good quote anyway. He said, when I, when I left home at 18, I was just appalled by the ignorance of my father. When I came home at 21, I just couldn't believe how much the old man had picked up in three years. <laughs> and many of us have probably experienced something of that. As you get older, you think, oh, there's actually more wisdom there than I realized. It's good to... Uh, There's just a helpful comment from Tim Keller. He says, who's an American pastor in New York, he says, you need to respect your parents' need to see themselves in you. That is, almost all parents are motivated at some level by desire to see what they are reflected in their kids. And one of the ways we honor them is by speaking well and seeking their wisdom and seeing how, effectively, reflecting back to them the kind of things that they have put into us. Now, again, in not, that, in not every situation will we have the relationship necessary to make that work, but it often does. And anyway, where they are available and where there is any, seek their wisdom. Fourth, provide for them. That's what Jesus is saying in this text. That's the obvious application. Provide for them. Don't put your money in the temple offering. If your parents need it, look after your parents. That's the fifth commandment. It's more important than your temple offering, as good as that may be on its own. It's interesting that Paul says, one of the strongest things Paul ever says in 1 Timothy 5, anybody who doesn't look after his relatives, and especially his immediate family, and he's talking about young, mainly young or middle-aged men supporting their widowed mothers, says anyone who doesn't support their family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Which is one of those verses most of us like either cross out or just ignore. Go, what? How could Paul say that? He says it because he's got a very strong sense of conviction about the need to honor your father and your mother. So if your mum is a widow and she's in physical need and you say, oh, do you know what? I don't have the money for that. No, no, no. Paul says that's denying Christianity. And then fifthly, support them. And by, the, by support, I don't just mean financially. I mean relationally. David says in Psalm 71, don't cast me off in the time of my old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. There's something that people as they age begin to feel, I don't want the youthful and vigorous to just leave me to one side. I want relationship. I want them to engage with me, ask me things, talk with me, laugh with me, care for me. I want them to be present. I want them to be here. I don't just need their money. I need their presence. As in, that's about presence with C-E rather than T-S, although T-S is fine as well. Right? I don't just need money. As I get older and less active, I want the support of humanity around me, not just a check or a, a bill to be paid, right? Forgive, speak well, seek wisdom, provide, support. Having said all that, when we stand back from the Ten Commandments, we probably think it's a little strange that this particular instruction is there. At some level, we probably go, you can't have a, a civilized society without people saying they're not going to kill each other, they're not going to sleep with each other's marriage partners, they're not going to steal or lie, because if you have a society that runs like that, this would be chaos, But honor your parents, why do we need that? Why not just say honor people or honor one another? And I suspect that one of the reasons why this is in the Ten Commandments as one of those central ten things God told his covenant people to do is that there is a very strong link between the way we regard and honor our parents or not and the way we regard and honor God or not. Look, think about it at a level of society for a moment, right? 
In societies, some of us have traveled, many of us have probably traveled to parts of the world where this is true. In societies where mothers and fathers are seen as being quite authoritarian and stern and distant and powerful, those cultures usually have a very similar vision of who God is. Have you noticed that? In cultures where the father, it often is the father in those cultures, has a, a very high authoritarian but not very affectionate role, God is seen that way too. On the other hand, in societies like the society of Eastbourne or London or Brighton or Polgate even, in societies like that, you find that there is a very low level of distinction to the point of it disappearing between parent and child, the honor given to fathers and mothers and the honor given to children. We're all on the same level together. When that happens, you find that the distinction between God and his people is also flattened to the point of disappearing. And people begin to think, well, there's no real distinction between creator and creatures, father and children. Actually, we're all a bit divine, aren't we? Actually, I, can, I don't think, I, if I were God, I wouldn't do that. That's a comment that people who come from a very sort of authoritarian culture don't make. But in our culture, you, people always say that, right? People who, sometimes Christians say it. Certainly people who aren't would often say things, ah, oh, if I were God, or I don't really get that God would... And you think that's reflecting the fact that as we flatten the difference between fathers and children and mothers and children, we've projected it onto God as well. And what we find is that in Judaism and Christianity, neither of those things happen, and neither of those things should happen, because God is neither the distant authoritarian one, nor the completely collapsed imminent one. He's both of those things brought together in the person of the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is transcendent and imminent. He's like that, he's up there, and he's in here. He's awesome. Holy, holy, holy. And he's affectionate. I want to see you. He's creator and he's compassionate, he's majestic and he's merciful, he's holy and he's happy. He's Lord and he's love. So parents are called to be the most affectionate, loving, rough and tumble, hair ruffling people in the world at the same time as children are called to treat their parents with reverence and respect and honor as if there is a difference between who they are and who their mum and dad are. And both of those things come together, and as we get to model that as the people of God in the church, other people, we even, can look at one another and say, do you know what, there's something of that in God. There's something in the way that you are so affectionate towards your kids, and they actually res respect and revere you as they do, that reflects the way that I am totally secure in the love of my father, at, at the same time as being completely aware that he is the one who is high and lifted up and inhabits eternity. Honor your father and mother. And in all of this, we look to Jesus as our ultimate example. He honors the father perfectly. He does everything the father says. He represents him well. He speaks well of him. He obeys him. He honors him. There's a scene in the miracle maker, that the sort of little film of the life of Jesus, where Jesus comes into the temple and it's the angriest he ever gets. He comes and he says, my house, my father's house is to be called a house of prayer. But you've turned into a den of thieves. And he just trashes the whole thing. And when I first saw it, I was moved to tears because I thought, that's the passion he has for the honor of his father. He refused to make void the command of God for human traditions. And then by dying for our sins and rising again, he brought first 12, then 120, and then thousands, and then millions, and now billions of us rushing in to his father's family that he might be the firstborn among lots and lots of brothers and sisters, and we could all worship the same father together. That's the ultimate reality that all of this points to. So as we hold up our kids and thank God, we see God feels like that about me. 
And as we go and give daffodils to our parents, we found, this is how I feel about God. Jesus, as he honored his father in his life and death and resurrection, made it possible for us to be adopted by him and to receive the spirit poured into our hearts by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. May we honor him with our whole lives that we may live long in the land that the Lord our God is giving us. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus and how he, for all the failings that we have as children and parents, and my goodness, there's a lot of failings as children and parents in my life and in this room. But we thank you that by giving us Jesus and by, through his perfect honoring of his father, I have been brought to a position where the father is not someone to be frightened of, nor actually somebody to be patronized or ignored, but somebody to be honored and yet loved by. And oh God, how beautiful it is that we are able to be loved by a father and fear him at the same time as the awesome high and lifted up one. We are so thankful, Jesus, for making that possible for us. We're so thankful, Holy Spirit, for bringing that reality into our emotional lives and our spirits. And we are so thankful, Father, that you have adopted us and empowered us to live a life that puts this on display for the world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.